0: Well, it's good to be back. Hopefully, raise your hand if you didn't get. There is a handout. Should be enough for everybody, I think. Um, it's good to be back. I haven't been here in two or three years, but I've been, been here a lot over many years. So if you're new in the past two or three years, I'm Gary. I actually have a, There's a special memory connected to this church that I've told many times. When I was here seven years ago, maybe, it was Labor Day weekend, and if you're from Paw Paw, you know what that means. It's in Morton, where our, head, our HMA headquarters is. We're the pumpkin capital of the world, so pumpkin festival is the big deal there. But your Labor Day weekend is your big deal. Your school uh, classmates' class reunions happen. And so I'm sitting over here, the first part of the service, and one of the ladies uh, just got up and mentioned we have. Barbara Quackenbush visiting here today, came back for her 50th high school reunion. She, she can't stay for the service, just wanted to be here for the beginning and was going to have to leave. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's two Barbara Quackenbushes in this world because I went to college with one in Philadelphia 50 years ago. Well, I found out after the fact that she is my Barbara Quackenbush. Her dad was the doctor here. If anybody's old enough to remember Dr. Quackenbush, she was the pawpaw doctor. But I didn't know until she left and we connected later. She was seated right behind me. We used to sit by each other in class and joke with each other and hadn't seen each other in 45 years since then. And there we were, right next to each other and didn't make the connection. We connected later over Facebook, but that's, my, that's a story I tell a lot about Paw Paw Bible Church. So, anyway, forget all that. Two weeks from Wednesday will be Ash Wednesday. And you may know it, if for no other reason, you'll be seeing people walking around with a blotch of ash on their foreheads. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York with a lot of Catholics, and the kids would stop by the church on the way to school that day. They'd all come in with the black mark in the shape of a cross. Incidentally, if you don't already know this, the tradition is that the palms that were used on Palm Sunday the previous year are saved and burned And the ashes from that is what they use to make the sign of the cross on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins the 40 days of Lenten season leading up to Easter. Actually, Sundays are exempt. There's 46 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter. So we evangelical Christians, we typically celebrate Easter, Palm Sunday, maybe Good Friday. But Ash Wednesday and Lent aren't typically on our calendars. But if you go back far enough, they would be on the calendars of our ancestors. And stay with me if I give you a little bit of church history, and then we'll turn to our Bibles. The word Lent comes from an old English word meaning spring, uh, literally lengthening, as in the lengthening of the days. Lent, of course, takes place in late winter, early spring, as the days get longer. It apparently went back to the very early church as just a day or two of fasting and prayer and preparation for Easter. In fact, it was probably originally observed by new Christians who were preparing to be baptized on Easter Sunday evening. That was the typical time to get baptized back in the early church days. The Council of Nicaea, you you may remember that in your history, they met in the year 325. They were the council that clarified and affirmed the church's teaching on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, also the deity of Jesus, the fact that he was both fully man while still fully God. And I mention it because one of the things found in the writings from the council back then was an observance of a 40-day Lent. That was 1,700 years ago. It wasn't until 300 years later that the 40 days became official, and those 40 days would coincide with Christ's 40 days of fasting in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. So the rules, the regulations of Lent have evolved over the years. Originally, you only had one meal a day. You ate no flesh, no white meat. Uh, Those rules were relaxed over the centuries. By the time I was growing up, it was typically abstaining from meat on Fridays, which is why in my hometown, the school lunch menu was always fish on Fridays during Lent. I don't know if any of you experienced that, older folks growing up. Fish on Fridays is still very much a part of it. Incidentally, here's a little trivia for you. McDonald's fish fillet sandwich. You know why that was created? back in the 1960s, to give Catholics something other than hamburgers to eat on Fridays during Lent. That's the origin of the fish fillet sandwich. So why don't we evangelical Protestants typically uh, celebrate Lent? And I should just mention, it's not, it's just, not just Catholics. Uh, Lutherans typically do Lent. Uh, Presbyterians, Methodists, many of them, they won't actually do Ash Wednesday, but they'll still observe those 40 days of Lent many times. But most of us in our circles don't. Well, why is that? Well, as often has happened in church history, things that start out well uh, and with a biblical basis can often get skewed and twisted far from their original intent, and Lent may be one of those examples. You know, a sad byproduct of this whole thing is the concept of Mardi Gras. You're probably familiar with the phrase, giving up something for Lent. Well, that, that originated as something for kids to do, to be involved in Lent, because the fasting aspect was only for adults, only adults aged 21 to 60. So kids were encouraged to give up some pleasure, practice self-denial for 40 days. And over the, fe- over the centuries, giving up something for Lent became the focal point for all ages. And unfortunately, a very unbiblical tradition that came out of that was this. If I'm going to have to give up certain pleasures for the next 40 days then I need to indulge them to the limits just prior to those 40 days. Thus the tradition of Mardi Gras. A French phrase meaning Fat Tuesday, though typically it's the weeds up to Wednesday. Fat Tuesday, eat and drink anything and everything that day because fasting begins the next day, hash Wednesday. In Great Britain, Fat Tuesday became known as Pancake Tuesday. The reason for that was the Church of England would encourage you to eat, eat the plainest foods during Lent. So you give up fat and flour and eggs and sugar and milk, and people would use up those products the day before by making pancakes. And whatever the spiritual significance of that, it was easily forgotten in the party atmosphere that eventually surrounded it. For example, there's a village of Alney in England, O-L-N-E-Y. We have an Olney in southern Illinois, too, but there's an Alney in England. It's a place we equate with John Newton. That's where he was pastoring, a small-town church, when he wrote Amazing Grace. But Olney actually was famous 300 years before John Newton for its pancake races on Pancake Tuesday, women carrying frying pans with pancakes, flipping them as they ran. It's still a big big tourist event today. Olney actually has a sister city in Kansas, liberal Kansas. Have you ever heard of liberal? It's out, out on the border of the Oklahoma Panhandle. That city has pancake races as well, and they actually compete between the two towns through by by way of satellite. Pancake Tuesday, pancake races. Well, in, in predominantly Roman Catholic countries, those few days before Ash Wednesday are known as Carnival, or Carnival, depending on what translation you're using, or what, what country you're in. That, that actually can be translated literally, farewell to the flesh. And the debauchery that goes on in those festivals this is as bad or worse than anything we see and hear about our own Mardi Gras down in New Orleans. I have a niece who was a missionary in Brazil for many years, Rio de Janeiro. They would take their church youth group off to camp during carnival just to get them away from all the decadence going on. We have friends who were longtime missionaries at Black Forest Academy in Germany. In fact, I know you used to support, I don't know if you still do, a missionary living in Condern. It's in the same town as Black Forest Academy. Anyway, we visited them several years ago. It happened during those days of Carnival when we were there, and they warned us to look straight ahead as we drove down the street because the signs and pictures and activities around town were things that a Christian wouldn't want to fill his mind with. So I say all that to say this. Lent originated as a time of spiritual preparation for Holy Week, Holy Week, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And the day or days before Ash Wednesday originated as a time of preparation for that 40 days of Lent. And how sad that events of such spiritual significance to a Christian should lead to something so blasphemous as Mardi Gras or Carnival, or even the seemingly harmless party atmosphere of pancake races. Lent over the centuries has become a time of observing four things in particular. And you take your hand out, because this has the list there, Prayer, Penitence, almsgiving, and self denial. Those are the four key factors pretty much around the world over the centuries of what to be observing. And so while it's not in our traditions or our more recent heritage to specifically observe Lent, I'd suggest that we dismiss it all as meaningless. We see what lessons we might learn from them. Because again, I think you'll find that the people who started it all were truly born again believers. our our forefathers as evangelical Christians. And obviously there's nothing wrong with prayer and penitence and almsgiving and self-denial if they're dealt with in a biblical context. In fact, there's something very right with all of them, so much so that we could argue we should be practicing practicing them 365 days a year, 366 this year, not just during 40 days of Lent. Thus the title of the message, Lent 24-7. And that's not to say there can't be, shouldn't be certain times in our own personal life, that of our family, that of our church family, when we set aside a certain time, set time for seeking God's face, his direction, his blessing, his mercy. There's certainly biblical examples of that. So let's take the rest of our time this morning. Let's look at these four areas, these four characteristics of Lent. I'm not suggesting your church should be observing Lent. Don't misunderstand me. But I am suggesting this. These foundational principles of Lent are things that could be, that need to be, a part of our personal walk with the Lord, that of our church family together. And it wouldn't hurt us during this Lenten season to take inventory. In fact, it might be very good for us, maybe very convicting. What about prayer? What role does prayer play in my life, in the life of our church? I dare say that there are sincere people who spend more time in prayer during Lent than you or I might. Unfortunately, if they're not believers, there may not be any eternal value to that. But rather than just dismissing all that as ritual, empty ritual, vain repetition, why not let it challenge me in my own prayer life? There's certainly nothing wrong with setting aside certain times to pray every day. Daniel did. That's how his enemies knew where and when to find him, before they got, threw him into the lion's den. One of the five pillars of Islam is praying five times a day. We have a son who was a pastor of an international church in Malaysia for several years, we visited several times, and we often heard those calls to prayer. Uh, one, one year, we were up in the highlands to get away from the heat of the equator, and uh, we were in a guest house that, unbeknownst to us, until 5 o'clock the next morning, had a loudspeaker right at the end of the lawn that was broadcasting the prayers, starting at 5 o'clock in the morning. So that the whole town could hear the imam and join in on the prayer or ignoring him, ignore him as probably many of them did unfortunately muslims do all that as part of their good works to try to get to heaven coming home from malaysia one year i was in i was seated in a area in uh, like the back section the front row of the back section and there was an open area in front of me maybe about four foot square and i was dozing off i woke up at one point and there was a young Muslim gal with a prayer cloth laid out there, and she was doing her prayers right there in front of me, thinking I was just not, not not that she wouldn't have done it if I was awake, but she was doing her prayers right at that point. Unfortunately, they do that as part of their good works to try to get to heaven. How sad, but what a rebuke to an awful lot of Christians who don't even pray once or twice a day, say nothing of five times a day. Most of us can probably quote First Thessalonians 5.17. You see that written there. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. It's a reiteration of Christ's words in Luke 18.1 that we ought to always pray and not faint. Lose heart. Always pray. Pray without ceasing. In other words, go about your daily activity in the spirit of prayer, always mindful of God's presence. And that spirit of prayer will just naturally overflow into actual prayer, whether verbalized or silent. Greek authors back in the Bible times used that word in First Thessalonians, translated without ceasing. They would use that to describe a hacking cough. A hacking cough. It's not that I'm always coughing, but the tendency is always there. I could break out into a cough at any moment. Does that characterize our prayer lives? I'm not always praying, but the tendency is all there. Always there. I could break out at any moment in prayer. The renowned preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 19th century London said this, I seldom pray more than five minutes at any time, but I seldom go more than five minutes without praying. But beyond that, what about special times of prayer, something out of the ordinary? Is that that appropriate for us in our walk with the Lord? Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, and look at verse 12. We have Christ Uh, A very important event happening here, Luke 6, 12, Christ went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer. All night he continued in prayer to God. Look at verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Did Christ pray all night, every night? Of his life here on earth? No. He was a human being, fully God, but also fully man, a man who needed his sleep, as far as we know, typically God. But this particular night preceded a very important event, the choosing of the 12 apostles, narrowed down from the large group of disciples. And Christ, in his humanity, knew the need to seek God the Father's help in this, and it turned into an all-night prayer meeting. You know, what a, what a rebuke to the meager prayer lives of most of us, even when facing major decisions. Question, what role does prayer play in my life, in the life of our church? Number two, what about penitence? Penitence, the word, the word penitence means regret for wrongdoing, contrition, repentance. Unfortunately, in some churches that typically observe Lent, it came to mean penance, not penitence, but penance. Penance means undergoing some kind of punishment or discipline, uh, usually self-imposed, to try in some way to express your sorrow for your sins, to obtain God's favor. Uh, You've probably seen images of Catholics in the Philippines on Good Friday. This happens every year, and it makes the international news. They will scourge themselves. Sometimes they'll Allow themselves be literally crucified for this very purpose of trying to obtain God's favor? Well, we'd argue there's nothing in Scripture that would tell us to do that. But at the same time, how, how contrite, how repentant am I for my sins? How careful am I to keep short accounts, knowing that unconfessed sin puts a barrier between God and me? Turn with me to Psalm fifty-one. Here we see an example of. Penitence. Unfortunately, King David waited a whole year after committing adultery and murder before he finally prayed this prayer. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. On over to verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This contrition, this penitence, this repentance, needs to be like praying without ceasing. We should be ever ready to confess our sins. Don't wait a year like David did. The moment the Holy Spirit convicts us, confess confess that sin. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with special times of self-examination. Go over a few pages or many pages to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, very familiar verses at the end of that Psalm. Here's David again. Verse 23, search me, O God. Know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 the importance of examining ourselves before coming to the Lord's table for communion. Some in the church in Corinth were sick because they were holding on to sin, unconfessed sin, and refusing to deal with it. Others, Others, it was so severe that it actually died for not doing so, it says. I encourage you to take that passage seriously next time and every time you're taking communion. Question, what role does penitence play in my life, in the life of our church? Number three, what about almsgiving? Almsgiving, which by definition is not just giving, but giving specifically to the poor, specifically to the poor. Incidentally, almsgiving... Is another pillar of islam when we were in malaysia uh, driving down past mosques on service days there would be people all over the street sitting on the steps standing on the sidewalk poor people waiting for the service to end knowing that the faithful muslims coming out of those uh, mosques were duty-bound to give to the poor and they were there ready to receive Bible has much to say about caring for the poor, both Old and New Testaments. Let me just remind you, two verses, go to Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. Paul's relating his experience of going to Jerusalem to get the blessing of the church leaders, Peter, James, and John. Keep in mind now, that's not the same Peter, James, and John, it's the same Peter and John, but it's not the same James, because James had been martyred by that point. This is James, the brother of Jesus. So James and Peter and John and the other church leaders, he went and got his, their blessing on his ministry. Incidentally, in verse 9, that's where we get the phrase pillar of the church and right hand of fellowship. They both come out of that verse. So those pillars extended the right hand of fellowship. They asked just one thing of him. What was it? Look at verse 10, Galatians 2.10. They asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. of All the things they could ask for, that was it. Remember the poor. And I just saw this in a commentary yesterday. Speaking of that verse, one reason maybe, it's just a conjecture here, but maybe a reason why Paul was so eager to care for the poor anyway was because he had been responsible for probably many widows and orphans back when he was persecuting the church and killing people for it. That could have left poor that he cared about and wanted to care for. Move on to 1 John 3.17. 1 John 3.17. In the context of Christians loving each other, look what John says, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods, and may I suggest that's everybody in this room, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Talk is cheap. Does the love of God abide in you? I'll be careful how you answer that, if you never show any concern, any tangible concern for the poor, particularly within the family of God, but not exclusively, particularly Question, what role does almsgiving play in my life, in the life of our church? Question four, what about self-denial? Well, as I've already said, fasting was a part of the very earliest observance of Lent, and as kids were invited to substitute some kind of self-denial for fasting, that self-denial eventually became an integral part of Lent for adults as well. But let's talk just a few moments about fasting We'll take a quick look at some passages that refer to it, going all the way back to the book of Judges. Go back to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. Israel's is in a civil war here, uh, 11 tribes against one. That one tribe was Benjamin, and the reason was Benjamin had refused to turn over some perverted men for punishment. But despite Benjamin's sin, God allowed that tribe to win the first two battles. You Remember that story? And the other 11 tribes were befuddled. How can this be happening? And if you're asking that same question, keep in mind those 11 tribes were guilty of many sins themselves. You can go back and read through the book of Judges if you need a reminder of that. And remember how the book ends. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. But look at verse 26 here in in Judges 20. Verse 26. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel, and, wept, and they sat there before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. And then we have this long parenthesis. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. Okay, let's remove that parenthesis and start the sentence again. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying... Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the brother, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. They wept, they fasted, they offered burnt offerings, they inquired of the Lord, and he finally gave them the victory at that point. Go back to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, Christ had just been Baptized. He was about to be tested and and proven ready for his appointed work. And look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Imagine that. And what happens? The tempter came. The tempter came. Go over to chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at starting in verse uh, 16. And when you fast, Christ says to the people listening, when you fast, do not look groomy like, gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, which is what they would typically do, no, just look normal, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Go on over to chapter 9, a couple pages. Chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John, John the Baptist, came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Christ never commanded fasting. He was obviously approved of it, practiced it himself. Move on to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are about to be sent off on their first missionary journey. Look at verse 1 of Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is actually down in verse 9 is the first time we see Saul called Paul. At this point it's still Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Go over the page to chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas are coming toward the end of that first missionary journey look what it says in verse 23 of chapter 14 and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting they committed them to the lord in whom they had believed so the first missionaries were commissioned with fasting the new church plants were launched with fasting and prayer back to number one on our list so while there's no verse Commanding us Christians to fast, there are certainly verses that show fasting was a part of Old Testament Israel, it was a part of the life of Christ, it was a part of the life of the early church, and rather than looking disparagingly at religious people trying to gain God's favor during, by fasting during Lent, it would probably be more productive for us to examine whether or not that spiritual discipline of fasting is something that could be helpful in our own walk with the Lord. Back to the bigger picture of self-denial, back to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Luke 9, 23, Christ said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross And you must follow me. And we we find that repeated in Matthew 16 and Mark 8. You must deny yourself. Other translations say it this way. Turn from your selfish ways. Forget about yourself. Uh, The message paraphrase of Matthew has Christ saying it this way, and I've got it printed at the bottom of your handout. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. You know, on Palm Sunday, we hail Christ as king of our lives. He is on the throne. I am not. He is in the driver's seat. I am not. That's easier said than done, isn't it? It's a constant battle for those of us who want to be in control, and that's pretty much all of us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Here's what some commentators say about the word deny. We must say no to selfish interests and earthly securities, earthly securities. We must replace our own preferences and plans with God's priorities and programs. We must cease to make self the object of our life and actions. Cease to make self the object of our life and actions. You get the idea what it means to deny yourself. You are not in the driver's seat. You may have heard of the spiritual discipline of asceticism, where you deny yourself things in order to be more spiritual, and there could be a place for that in the Christian life. You know, A guy may be so addicted to sports that he denies himself satellite television because he knows that if he has it, he'll just waste his time watching countless sports channels that are available. We find that when we stay in hotels, and there might be 100 channels, and 90 of them seem to be sports channels. But it's more than denying ourselves certain things. It's denying self. Cease to make self the object of our life and actions. And it's also taking up our cross. You know, in the Roman Empire, a convicted criminal, when he was taken to be crucified, was forced to carry his own cross, at least at least the cross piece. Remember, they tried to get Christ to do that. And when they found out he was physically unable, they forced Simon of Cyrene, to do it for him. This was supposed to show publicly that Christ was now under submission to the Roman rulers that he had once been opposing. As we take up our cross, we are showing submission to the one we once opposed. We're admitting to his right, his control over our lives. He is in the driver's seat. We are not. And notice, it's take up our cross, not his cross. It's not necessarily suffering and dying as he did, but it is being ready to bear whatever comes to us within God's will as a follower of Jesus. And for some, indeed, it might mean, it does mean suffering and death, especially in certain parts of the world today. Persecution of Christians, martyrdom is running rampant. We actually have two families from our church down in Morton, a brother and a sister, a, a brother and wife, a sister and husband, two different countries in Africa, both in areas where they need to be ready on a moment's notice to evacuate because it's that dangerous. They get to get out. The, the church, the, the native church, does not get to get out. Luke adds the word daily. Take up your cross daily, day after day, not just for 40 days. There's no prospect of release in this life. We're in it for the long haul. We actually sang about that in our songs this morning. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Wherever that path leads, follow me. The Greek form is the present imperative, which means keep following me. Saying no to self, yes to God, is to continue day in and day out, to the end of the spiritual life, this earthly life. Keep following me. And we can only truly follow him once we've made that decision, that radical decision to deny self day after day after day. Follow me day after day after day. Question, what role does self-denial play in my life, in in the life of our church? Prayer, penitence almsgiving, self-denial. They're all part of Lent. They will be observed at least to some degree by multiplied millions of people in these weeks ahead leading up to Easter. I would suggest to you that prayer, penitence, almsgiving, and self-denial are also part of a true Christian's life, going all the way back to the early church. And if you want to go even further, back to the Old Testament saints as well. A follower of Christ, serious about a deepening walk with him, will pursue these and whatever other spiritual disciplines. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. Remember that the message title this morning is Lent 24-7. There are at least three things I lament about Lent. Number one is the very ungodly things that happened just prior to it, those 40 days of pursuing godly things. Number two, I re- lament the vast, overwhelming majority of people who observe Lent probably do not have a personal relationship with Christ, thus are doing all these things in vain in terms of eternal consequence. And let me add this important note. They're also doing it in the flesh. If They have no relationship to Christ. They have no Holy Spirit indwelling them, enabling them. We believers do have that relationship. We do have that Holy Spirit. It's important that our attempts at these disciplines not in the flesh, but clothed in power from on high, the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember the end of Luke when Christ ascended, telling the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Don't do it in your own strength. That would have happened at Pentecost. And my third lament would be this. If prayer, penitence, almsgiving, and self-denial are so good, and they are, then why the emphasis of a 40-day period instead of every day? of every week, of every month, all year long, 24-7. Prayer is to be done without ceasing. Unconfessed sin, number two, puts a barrier between God and me. I surely don't want to wait for a whole year after this Lent to be penitent and restore fellowship. I don't want to do what David did after that murder and adultery. Number three, if almsgiving, remembering the poor, reveals that the love of God dwells within me, I surely want to be giving evidence of that year-round, not just during those 40 days. And if it's true that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, then number four, self-denial, is a condition of discipleship, not just during 40 days of Lent, not just on Sunday morning when I set aside everything and come to church, not just each morning when I take time to have some devotions that every waking moment of every hour, of every day. And when I'm sleeping, too, if that's possible. Lent 24-7. May God help us to pursue, continue to pursue, the kind of discipleship right now as we walk out the door this morning and during these coming 40 days of Lent and the day after Lent ends and six months after that, every day in between, 24-7. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to each day crown you as king of our life, knowing that as we do acknowledge you, and not ourselves, as king, as the one in the driver's seat, that these other things can and will fall into place. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen.